Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew 21, Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their coats on them so that Jesus could sit on them. Very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I was going to talk to you this morning about what a difference a week makes, but uh, judging from the weather today, maybe we should talk about what a difference a day makes. But uh, I'm sure you've noticed that a week can make a significant difference. And this is true in so many ways. Perhaps you've watched somebody in declining health and notice how significant those changes are from week to week, if not from day to day. Likewise, for improving health. Uh, You know, we have a wicked cold a couple of days and a week later we wonder where it all went and we feel great and we've recovered fully. Last Sunday, there was still quite a bit of snow. Yesterday, it was all gone. Today, we're back to where we are. But I'm confident that by next Sunday, it'll all be gone. Never mind the, what, 10 to 15 centimeters they're forecasting on Wednesday. That's, that's nothing. It'll all be gone. But so much can happen in one week. A week can make all the difference in the world. Well, we've hit the pause button on the Hope series, a study of for Peter's first letter. We started that series near the end of January, and for most of February and March, we have been, that has been our focus. Last Sunday, Pastor Ken shifted us from that study of First Peter to a short series of messages centered on Jesus and specifically his death, burial, and resurrection. In short, a brief Easter series. And as I came to it today and thought about it, Palm Sunday, it struck me that likely most of us know the major events well. Maybe too well. We have been in church before and we've remembered Palm Sunday. Maybe we've come on Good Friday, but we often will skip from Palm Sunday and the joy and celebration of those events right through to the joy and celebration of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so what I'd like to do this morning is perhaps a little bit different. I want us to slow down a little bit 
and to think about the week that lies ahead. I want to help us immerse ourselves in the events of that week. This is a week that truly makes a difference. Today, April 2012, here in Edmonton, Alberta, we are separated from those events by time and space. But the events that took place there were real, and they happened in real places. And as we journey through this week, my hope is that it'll help prepare our hearts and our minds for both the agony of his suffering and the joy of his resurrection. This week has been called Holy Week from about the 4th century on. It is also often referred to as the Passion Week, referring to Jesus' suffering. The movie, The Passion of the Christ, depicted these events in all of their gory detail. But whether it's the 4th century or the 21st century, we don't remember these events alone. Christians for centuries have, before us have remembered these days. And today, Christians around the globe celebrate Palm Sunday and the rest of this week's events. I'm not a huge historical buff, but when I think about the connection that you as a, and we as followers of Jesus today have over the generations, I'm encouraged and I'm humbled. We don't walk alone. We're not the first ones to remember these events. Our roots go way back. In the Sunday news today, you'll find a, an insert simply titled, Walking with Jesus Through the Holy Week. And maybe you've already had a chance to look at it. My hope is that each day we will take some time to read the scriptures that record that particular day's events. And in doing so, even though we won't be gathering together again until Friday morning, we will together experience these events. As you go through your week this day, whether you're at work tomorrow, at school, wherever you find yourself this week, try to place yourselves into these events. Try to imagine what Jesus was doing on each of these days. What was he feeling? Joy at being welcomed in as a conquering hero, even though he knew that their worship and praise was somewhat misguided on that Palm Sunday. The feelings of rejection and betrayal, unbelievable suffering, and incredible joy as he personally experienced the power of the resurrection. I believe that this simple discipline of Focusing on Jesus, a a, a discipline that has been practiced by Christians throughout history. You see, for almost 2,000 years now, Christians have commemorated and celebrated and contemplated these events with Jesus. And in doing so, have entered into a profound understanding of what Jesus has accomplished. I think it's really, really important that we understand all of these events. Because it does a number of things for us. 
So I think there's some good reasons for us to, to maybe even memorize these events, not just for this year, but future years where you think, okay, this is what was taking place on Monday, and this is Tuesday and Wednesday, and we'll come through those in, in just a moment. But here's some of the reasons I think that this is important. First of all, it grounds our faith in history. These are real events that happened in real places. I tried hard to find a a good map that I could put up on on the screen for you and you could locate ourselves physically in in these places that we read about this morning, how how Jesus and his disciples gathered at at, uh, at, in Bethany and then how they traveled to Bethpage and then ultimately how they came down the Mount of Olives Olives and through the Kidron Valley and and into Jerusalem. and, And you can retrace those steps. And when we can locate ourselves into the story, it gives us much better and deeper understanding of that story. That Jesus suffered incredible pain, that he really died, that there really was an empty tomb, and that, yes, Jesus is alive today. And as you even read those eyewitness reports of his appearance, to so many people after his resurrection, you have to think to yourself going, you know what, there's no way that they could have made this up. All of the people that saw Jesus, the scriptures talk about at least 500 people that saw Jesus after his resurrection. Can you imagine all of us agreeing to keep a story, a false story? How long would that last? It didn't. And so when we read those accounts and we see what happened and how Jesus appeared to his disciples and how he had contact with them, we are then reminded that, you know what, our faith isn't based on some fantasy. It's based on real historical evidence and took place in real geographical places. And so it's good for us to walk to those places that Jesus walked Secondly, I think a good reason is that it helps us understand the disciples. See, they get a bad rap sometimes. Man, were they ever fickle, weren't they? Why were they so frightened? I mean, really? And how could they abandon Jesus in the hour of his greatest need? But as we think about that, we have to ask ourselves then, what must have happened then from them being scared and running and abandoning him? to becoming the bold and courageous leaders, ultimately willing to risk everything, including their lives, to tell the world about Jesus. Something happened. And when I think of their willingness and their passion, it ultimately convicts me of my own responsibility as a disciple today. Thirdly, immersing ourselves into the events and experiences of Holy Week I believe, fuels and deepens our worship. Simply put, if we just gather today and sing Hosanna and then return next Sunday and and sing He's Alive or whatever we'll sing about the resurrection, it's very easy for us to just disengage from that and go through the motions from one Sunday to the next Sunday. But if we take each day and walk where Jesus walked, and experience what Jesus experienced. I believe we come to a deeper understanding of the events of this week. There's significance to our lives 
and how they make a difference in our lives today. Simply put, I come to a much deeper understanding of the love of Jesus. And if He loved me so much and gave so much for me, how can I not turn around and have His love for me compel my love for Him and for others? Fourthly, it draws us then, as I said already, into a deeper relationship with Jesus. Because for me, and even sharing this this morning, that is the ultimate goal. That we experience what Jesus experienced. Maybe the, the rush of adrenaline as He entered into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Maybe we even, in, in some way, feel the visceral anger when He cleared the temple. Maybe the tenderness of the final days together with His disciples. Or the intimacy of the Last Supper. The heartbreak of seeing His disciples turn away and abandon Him during His greatest need. And then ultimately, even deny Him. Maybe we experience the anguish as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane for another option. Or the determined acceptance of the Father's will. Maybe ultimately the intense physical torture of scourging and crucifixion and the sorrow and pain of His death. So can I encourage you to join me as we cover the road to the cross with all our hearts, souls, and minds. And together we reflect on this final holy week. Just think about it. What a difference a week can make. So let's just walk through these events of this week and I'll give you a brief overview and if you want to follow along in that insert that's there, you can, you can do that. But on that Sunday, it was the triumphal entry. All four Gospels record this event for us. And so you could this afternoon sit down and read all four of those accounts and see the little nuances and the, the different details that each of the writers brings out for us. But this is the day that is the start of a journey that is taking us towards the climax of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus travels from Bethany to Jerusalem. It's a distance of about three kilometers. And though this triumphal entry was a public acceptance of Jesus being the Messiah, and it presented a direct challenge to his enemies, it must have been a disappointment to many of his followers. Because Christ did not enter into Jerusalem upon a mighty horse of war, but upon a colt representing peace. And humility. And after entering into Jerusalem, he looked around the temple areas, surveyed it, and then returned back those three kilometers to Bethany in the evening. Monday, Jesus and his disciples return again to Jerusalem. And along the way, he curses a fig tree, which was a symbolic way of pronouncing judgment. There they return to the temple, and this is where he clears the temple and and then ultimately deals with various miracles and challenges in the temple. And in the evening, Jesus and his disciples once again return to Bethany. 
Tuesday. Once again, Jesus and disciples travel to Jerusalem only to return again to Bethany in the evening. Wednesday is recognized in many respects as kind of silent Wednesday. The Gospels don't record much of what happened that day. It seems that every one of them stays in Bethany, except for Judas. That's the day that Judas returns alone to Jerusalem to make arrangements for the betrayal of Jesus. Thursday, as we journey through this week, the preparations of the Passover are made. And in the evening, the disciples gather with Jesus in the upper room for a meal and the Last Supper. And on Thursday night, if you sat down, maybe by yourself or with your spouse or with your family, and read even John 13 to 17, because that is what Jesus, that is the record of Jesus' teaching on that night. After supper, late at night now, Jesus and the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And Jesus leaves his disciples, and when he returns, he finds them sleeping. What a disappointment that must have been when he asked them to gather and, and to pray with him, only to come back and find them sleeping. He actually does it a second time. Finds them sleeping again. And a third time. Friday, probably sometime after midnight, Judas returns, betrays Jesus, and Jesus is arrested. The rest of that night and early in the morning, Jesus faces various trials, each then trying to pass him off to someone else. And it is during these trials that the people begin to demand that Jesus be crucified. I've often wondered, how could it be, or could it be, that some of the people who had been shouting, Hosanna, save us, because they were expecting the Messiah to come, but to liberate them from Roman oppression. They had it all turned upside down. They missed it. Jesus was coming to liberate them, all right, but not from Roman rule, but from the oppression of sin. But how could they move in just five days' time from shouting Hosanna to ultimately crucify him? I mean, how could they turn so fast? And how fickle can they be? I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but a number of years ago at the church that we previously served, we, we had a, an Easter production. And you kind of carry through the week's events and typically focus on the, on the death and burial and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus to tell the story in drama form in, in maybe an hour and a half or two hours. And there are many churches even in the city that do this. And I remember rehearsing this 
and as being part of the choir, coming to the place where they wanted the crowds to be shouting, crucify him. Do you know how hard that is? If you really enter yourself and locate yourself into that story, to be shouting about Jesus, crucify him. And I remember there was always this muted thing and the lady that was directing this thing, she goes, guys, you need more intensity and more passion. And we couldn't do it. And then that very first night, I remember, you know, everybody was kind of prepared for that. And, you know, you had to make it sort of be real. And you're entering into the story. Man, I broke. And I think many around us did. Because it's almost impossible to do. It's a horrific thing. Think about Judas celebrating the Passover one hour and then betraying Jesus the next hour. But I don't want to be so hard on Judas or some of the people in the crowd because it wouldn't certainly have been all of them. There were followers of Jesus that certainly were not the ones calling out for crucify him. But there were people on that first day that got caught up in the crowd, I'm sure. Thought this was a great event and everybody loves a parade or a processional and had a great time. But then when they discovered that what they were expecting of Jesus wasn't actually going to come to fulfillment, they turned pretty quickly. But I don't want to be so hard on them either. Because when I think about it, How easily can I sing Hosanna at church on Sunday and then not follow Jesus on Monday? To not live in obedience. Fortunately, for sinners like those in the crowd, excuse me, on that first Good Friday, Fortunately for Judas, fortunately for me, the entire week's events are about grace. And grace makes all the difference. When we really immerse ourselves into this week, we come face to face with Jesus and and what he was willing to endure for our sake and for our forgiveness and for our restoration. And so then the next time that we stumble, trip, fall, we know that there is one who loves us and offers to us what we don't deserve. Grace. And He is willing and able to restore us. What a difference a week makes. I think about Peter that week. Peter's story, I think, is a 
great story of a life that is transformed by grace. If you step back and remember the life of Peter, his relationship with Jesus didn't exactly get off to a great start. One day, Jesus was teaching and the people were crowding around him on the shore of a lake. And because of the press of the crowd, Jesus got into Peter's boat and from it he taught the people on the shore. And when he had finished teaching, he said to Simon Peter, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Peter answered, now, who does this non-fisherman think he is? That's what he was thinking to himself. Who does he think he is? So he says, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But if you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so Peter was doubtful, skeptical, even somewhat reluctant. He basically said, listen, we've been fishing all night. We didn't catch anything. We're not going to catch anything now. But maybe we'll just humor you, throw in our nets again. Then there was the walking on the water. Do you remember this? can read about it in Matthew 14. Peter was the one, when they saw Jesus coming, who was bold and assertive and said, well, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And so he steps out. But what does he do? His reality hits him and he thinks, I'm walking on water. And as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, he found himself sinking and crying out for help. I wonder... I bet the other disciples didn't let him forget that one for a while. And then there was the time that Peter rebuked Jesus when Jesus himself predicted his death. And in turn, Peter strongly, sorry, Peter was strongly rebuked by Jesus. Jesus said to him, "Get behind me, Satan." You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then we move into the events of Holy Week. Peter was there on that Palm Sunday when they entered into Jerusalem. He was probably leading the shouts of praise. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He was there when Jesus cleared the temple. He was there when Jesus cursed the fig tree and he wondered what that was all about. He was the one who fell asleep in the garden. At Christ's betrayal and arrest, when the soldiers came to get Jesus, it was, it was Peter who rushed in to defend Jesus with the sword and cut off the, the ear of the high priest's servant. And again, Jesus rebuked Peter, and he said, this isn't the way that we're going to do things in my kingdom. And he healed that servant's ear. Then, of course, 
There is the famous denial of Jesus. Now that in and of itself may have not been so bad if it hadn't been for Peter's passionate protest at that Last Supper. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And just a few hours later, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. And when the rooster crowed, Peter ran off and wept. No doubt his bitter grief was at denying his Lord. And it was aggravated by the reminder of his own proud and foolish boast. And then there was his skepticism about the resurrection. He didn't believe it at first. Peter was the one who was kind of wondering what happened. And if you know anything about the life of Peter, he was one that you kind of get a sense that early on he couldn't do anything right. I mean, what's the image most people have of him? That he was proud and hot-headed and boastful. Someone who was always sticking his foot in his mouth. But then something happened. After the resurrection, God's grace is and believably evident in his life. And the difference that God's grace made in his life was remarkable. Because who was the primary spokesman on the day of Pentecost? It was Peter. Who preaches the first sermon and ultimately 3,000 people are saved? It was Peter. Who took the gospel to Cornelius and ultimately to the Gentiles? It was Peter. Who made that decisive statement at the Council of Jerusalem that ultimately turned the tide against the Pharisee believers who had been demanding that the new Gentile believers would be circumcised and obey the law of Moses? It was Peter. He became the church's primary spokesperson. And as you read the Gospels and see Peter pre-Holy Week, And then you read the letters that Peter wrote post-Holy Week, you see a transformation. And so what was it? It was the events of those weeks, that week. And it made all the difference in his life. It's no wonder that he could then write at the end of 1 Peter chapter 5, And the God of all grace. Because that's what he knew. He had lived it. He had experienced it. And the God of all grace, he writes, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. He knew that. He suffered. It was real. Jesus himself will restore you because he's making a personal testimony. This is what happened to me. He restored me. But he will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. 
And then is it any wonder that he could close his second letter with these words? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, Peter had experienced that week with Jesus. And he experienced God's grace. And it was all possible because the events of that week. And so please, let's not just pass superficially through this week, but let's really place ourselves into the experience of it. And then like Peter, be struck by the wonder and awe of God's grace, his unmerited favor towards us.